Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 7, 25-40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined that this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Uh, it's good to see everybody here today. Uh, you know, I know the fans are blasting. Can can you all hear me in the back? Yeah? Okay, great. You know, before we start, uh, I do have a little bit of an announcement to make. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to give this announcement. Uh, but as the elders, we've been talking about how to really better shepherd the congregation uh, and how we can, uh, as elders, be uh, proactive in shepherding the congregation. Uh, we want you to... We want uh, to know, basically, we don't want to basically this. We don't want to pretend to shepherd you. We actually want to shepherd you, and uh, we actually want to care for you and uh, know about your faith, know how you're doing, uh, even know how your marriages are doing, knowing how your know how your family is doing, know how uh, work is going, keep you accountable if you're dating, all those kind of things. Uh, we want to be able to uh, really shepherd you and meet with you, and uh, just personally speaking too. Um, let me say this about marriages. Uh, usually when marriages uh, seek a counselor of some sort, it's because it's in crisis mode. And uh, that's probably not the best time to seek uh, accountability and counsel. And so we kind of want to guide uh, all of us while we're here, at least, to um, you know just walk together in this faith and to be able to pray for you. And uh, I don't say that as kind of like, oh, you know, we're, we're supposed to pray for you, but we actually do pray for you, and we want to know how to uh, really pray for you, and not, you know, not stuff that you kind of make up just to, like, answer that question, but really the things that you're going through, we want to actually pray for you and for God to move in your lives and your hearts, and we, 
explicitly meet uh, every month to specifically pray for you all in the congregation. So all that to say is we've systematically tried to kind of divvy up uh, the congregation. Uh, all the elders are going to, at some point over the next couple of months, try to reach out to you uh, and, you know, try to just find out how you're doing uh, in life. Okay? Elders, did I cover it? Yeah? Okay, great. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray together as we uh, begin. Uh, Lord God, we thank you just for this time, and we thank you for this gathered worship, and we pray that as we reflect on this uh, curious passage, that you would bring uh, greater clarity, that you would help us to see the great vision that you have for your people. Uh, but more than that, you would align and conform our sight and our perspective uh, to yours. And you give it here, and it's so powerful, it's so life-transforming. And we pray that as we do this, we would once again come to the realization that knowing Christ is everything, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you. I'm good. I'm glad to be done with the series on Ecclesiastes. Moving on to something else, and uh, I thought maybe for the next couple of weeks we would do something maybe a little bit lighter in topic. And we're going to talk about marriage, and we're going to do a series on marriage. And let me just say from the very beginning, because I think when you hear that, uh, if you're not married, the automatic thing is going to be like, "Oh, this is not a series for me." Uh, but I actually have a bigger agenda uh, in going over this series. Uh, it's not about how to especially, particularly help your individual marriages, or uh, although I hope it does that. But basically, I want us to know what the Bible says about marriage and the story that marriage is placed in within God's story and God's narrative. And I think whether you're married or not, knowing what the Bible says about marriage is actually important because all of us are going to have a role in terms of shaping how we understand, view, and talk about marriage. If you think about our culture, our culture is very interesting because I think there seems to be these two different extreme narratives when it comes to talking about marriage. So on the one hand, you have people who don't seem to believe in marriage anymore. Uh, I was listening to this interview with Susan Sarandon, who's an actress, and uh, she was in a relationship for a very long time with Tim Robbins, and a few years ago they, they split. Uh, but they made an explicit decision to not get married. And the reason for this is because uh, what she said is she liked the idea of just staying together uh, because you still want to stay together rather than just staying together because you're married. And what I think she was getting at there is that it's only worth being in a marriage, it's only worth staying married if you're still finding some kind of fulfillment out of that relationship. And if you don't find any fulfillment out of that relationship or out of that marriage anymore, then perhaps you shouldn't be married or perhaps you shouldn't stay married anymore. And so we have this narrative of marriage is all about us, it's all about our self-fulfillment, it's all about our individual pleasure. A couple years ago, I heard Cameron Diaz, another actress, say that she doesn't believe that we are created to be in monogamous relationships, but basically you get into a relationship, and once that relationship has run its course, once you've gotten everything that you wanted to get out of that relationship, you move on, and you go to a, another relationship. And I think this is, again, part of the narrative that we see in our culture, that marriage is ultimately about self-fulfillment. And in this narrative, I think marriage becomes devalued. And so what you're starting to actually see in our culture is some people begin to prefer to remain unmarried because uh, it seems like it leads to a much more enjoyable life. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but something happened in 2009 when uh, they were taking a census. And in 2009, for the first time since the government started tracking this data in 1976, unmarried people 
unmarried adults outnumbered married adults. And just for the sake of comparison, in 1976, 37% of adults were not married, but in 2009, over 50% of adults were not married. And of course, there's tons of reasons for that, but it was just such an interesting shift that has taken place in our culture uh, and in our country in particular. But this is not uh, only a shift that's taking place in our country, but this also seems to be happening in other countries as well. You know, I have a friend who lives in Japan, and he's a pastor in Japan, and he says that the problem in Japan is nobody is getting married. Uh, and it's actually a big problem, and I think they call it the celibacy syndrome. And people aren't even interested in sex anymore, and the reason why it's a problem is because the population is shrinking in Japan. And so I think the government is very concerned about uh, the, this, and uh, I think they're trying to incentivize you know, meeting people and getting married and starting families and so forth. You know, Last year I saw an article in The Economist about how women in Korea are actually choosing to remain single. And I think maybe part of the reason is that women in Korea uh, are probably not treated uh, very well by Korean men. So actually a single life is uh, in some cases more attractive than being married to a man uh, in Korea. And they decided, well, I want to celebrate this decision and I'm not going to have a traditional marriage. And so there's this kind of thing that, that started coming up where single women celebrate their decision to remain single by having a single wedding with a photographer and this big party and this big celebration. And uh, it's, it's so interesting how you just kind of look at different cultures all over the world. On the one hand, marriage is starting to get devalued as something that is not a good thing. And it's not a good thing because it leads to greater unhappiness, it restricts our freedom, and it restricts this idea of finding fulfillment. That's one narrative. On the other hand, there's also a narrative that says this, marriage is everything. And there's a narrative that overvalues marriage. And it's a narrative that says if you don't get married, then somehow life is not complete and you can't live a life that is fulfilling. You know, I think when we use language like stage of life, sometimes it can easily give one a sense that marriage is the next stage that we are all supposed to move on to and graduate to. And therefore, those who don't get married uh, can oftentimes feel like they're behind and something is wrong. And so those who aren't married, I think, can feel like the rest of the world maybe is advancing ahead and because I'm not married, I'm just behind everybody else. And I also see that uh, some people don't think, you know, life really starts until you get married. So you kind of live life in limbo. You don't really commit to anything and you kind of say in the back of your mind, well, once I get married, then life will really begin. Then I can start to plant roots. Then I can begin to do things. And therefore, again, those who aren't married under this narrative are made to feel like second-class citizens. Now, here's what I think. Uh, I think you actually find this narrative operative in the church. And I think this is a narrative that has probably hurt people. You know, think about some of the, some of the things uh, we say so innocently to people who aren't married. We might say something like this. You know, you're such a good catch. Why aren't you married yet? Don't you even want to get married? Aren't you even looking to get married? 
here, let me help you find someone so you can get married. Uh, maybe you're just being too picky with your choices, and maybe that's why you're not married, or maybe you're not putting yourself out there yet, and that's why you're not married. And, you know, of course, I think maybe these are well-intentioned comments that people say. But I also think they, they can be seeped in a little bit of judgment because the assumption here is that, again, something is wrong with you if you're not married. And I think what these comments can do is perpetuate this false narrative that says everybody needs to get married. And because we all believe in this narrative and this story, we don't allow singleness to be fully dignified and a fully viable option. And, you know, let me tell you, it's also interesting uh, as a pastor, you know, when you look at uh, different postings for a, a job opening as a pastor, you know, one of the preferred qualifications is, you know, churches are always looking for a pastor who's married. <laughs> churches are always looking for a pastor who's not only married, but probably has a couple kids. And again, the assumption there is, you know, a pastor who is married and a pastor who has kids is going to make a better minister for the church. And the presumption is if you're single and if you're not married, then you won't be as effective in being able to shepherd a congregation and minister to people. And again, even in the church, this narrative is just so powerful and so operative that we don't allow single people to, again, uh, have the option to say, you know, this is a fulfilled life. My life is fulfilled even if I'm not married. This is a fully dignified life even though I'm not married. And we think about this. I wonder if Paul would go so far as uh, to turn the question that we often ask and to turn that question around because what we typically ask people is this, why aren't you married yet? But maybe Paul would ask uh, the married folks, why are you married? Why did you decide to get married? <laughs> right? And I think this is something that we'll see maybe in this passage. Now, when we look at the Bible, I do think it does challenge both narratives, and uh, it neither demonizes marriage and or devalues it and says marriage is a bad thing, but it also, at the same time, doesn't over-elevate marriage and say marriage is everything. The Bible, I think, has this third view that says, yeah, marriage is a good thing, but it is not everything. Marriage is a good thing, but it is not the only thing, and it is not the ultimate thing, and it is not the thing that gives you your identity, and it is not the, ma the thing that makes your life worth living. And uh, I'm doing this very intentionally because I think uh, oftentimes when uh, you know, we, we do marriage series, uh, here's what I see the pattern. You do a whole series on marriage, and you address the married folks, and then the last sermon, you'll do something on singleness. Uh, but that's not my uh, that's not my intention here. Basically, what I want to do is I want to look at marriage uh, from the perspective of what Paul says about singleness. Uh, I want to look at marriage uh, and not as a sermon uh, for single people and say this is how you cope with being single. Uh, this sermon is not about that at all. But again, it's for everybody. Saying, have we been telling the right story when it comes to marriage? Have we been elevating marriage to a place where maybe we shouldn't have elevated it? Now, if you look at the beginning verses here, Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing, he basically says, let me make it clear here. Uh, I'm not giving you a command from the Lord, but I'm basically giving you my judgment. I'm giving you my opinion. If you are married, stay married. Right? Don't, don't end your marriage. Don't get divorced. But if you're single, stay single. It's not wrong to get married, but those who get married have anxieties related to this present world, and I want to spare you from that. And there are a few things I think that we have to clarify here, but let me just stop there and make one simple point. 
One of the things Paul says is that it's, it's okay to not get married. And I'm sure for many of us, that is not a shock. But you should know, in Paul's time, that would have been a very, very radical thing to say. Because you see, in ancient cultures, the place in which you derived honor, the place in which you derived your self-worth, came from your family. And sometimes people would get married not out of romantic reasons, but sometimes people would get married out of economic reasons or social reasons. And I know, I know that being single uh, in our culture today uh, can be a, a, a difficult thing that many people struggle with. But what you have to realize is that it probably, I think, would have been much, much harder in the day that Paul is writing here. You know, for women in particular, in the ancient world, it would have been difficult to be single because oftentimes women were dependent upon their husbands uh, to provide. You know, today we live in a time where women have very successful careers and women can live very independently of a man. But in the ancient culture, uh, a lot of times women needed husbands in order to get by. And uh, just to kind of uh, elaborate on this, you know, I saw this interesting passage from the sociologist Rodney Stark, and uh, one of the things that he points out is that in pagan culture, there was actually a law that would fine widows for not getting remarried within two years. And I think the thought behind that is the government viewed single women as a drain to society. And uh, I know, again, it's hard to be single today, uh, I know weddings aren't as fun as you get older because they seem to highlight the fact that you're single. I know it's annoying when the friends that you used to hang out with all the time are not as available anymore. But imagine this. Imagine living in a time where you're actually fined by the government for being single. And so you have here in the ancient world a lot of pressure to get married. Now, from a Jewish perspective, there too is also a lot of pressure to get married. Uh, you know, I read a, this quote in a commentary from a first century Jewish rabbi, and he basically says this, a man who didn't get married is not a proper man. And in that community, teachers would actually explicitly teach that the more dignified life is a life in which you are married. And within that kind of social construct, I do wonder how other Jewish people and other people in general would have viewed Jesus Christ. <laughs> I wonder how people would have viewed the Apostle Paul, who themselves were not married. And so when Paul tells people to remain as you are, and especially when he says to single people, remain as you are, you have to realize that this is a huge departure from the norms of society. And so the question is this for us. Why does Paul suggest that single people remain single? What is his reason? What is his logic behind that? And he explains it further by stating in verse 29, and he says this, The appointed time has grown very short. And you continue on to verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what is he saying here? Uh, you know, let, let me do a little bit of theology. Uh, in the theology of Paul, oftentimes he talks about two ages or two worlds. So, for example, you see in Romans uh, chapter 12, and one of the things that Paul says is, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world or this age. And a lot of people point out the assumption there is then that there is a that world or that age. And in Paul's theology, there are two ages. You have the old age, which is characterized by things like sin and death, 
And then you have the new age, which is inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ, and it's the new age of the Spirit. And so what age are we living in now and today? And the answer is both. We're living in both ages. We live in a time where the old and the new are overlapping. And that's why we still say we struggle with sin, but at the same time we can say things like this, sin has no power over us. That's why in one sense we can say we need to grow in holiness, but in another sense we can say this, that we have already been made holy in Christ. And when Jesus returns a second time, the old age is going to completely pass away and fade away, and we will be living in the new age without sin and death. And that's basically the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem described in the book of Revelation. And so when Paul says that the present form of this world is passing away, I think he's saying this, that the old age of sin and death is passing away and we need to be a people who live in the age, in the new age of the Spirit. But there's a little more nuance to that, okay? Because that can easily be misunderstood, and it probably was misunderstood by the Corinthian church. And so if you look at verses 29 to 31, uh, he says some, you know, kind of strange, curious things, uh, but I think important things. And uh, he says, those who are married live as though they were not married. Uh, those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. And let those who buy as though they had no goods. And what does that mean? What is he saying here? I, th I think he's saying this. Don't live as though this world is all that you have. So when you mourn, yeah, you should mourn. But don't mourn to the point, don't mourn too much. When you rejoice, yeah, you should rejoice. But don't rejoice too much. Don't get too attached to this present world because this present world is fading away. But at the same time, you are in this present world and you have to acknowledge that reality. But your hope is in a world that is to come. You know, this month, a lot of seniors are in high school are going to graduate. And I remember many, many years ago when I was a senior in high school, and I applied to, I applied to two colleges, and they were both uh, colleges that had a, a very general application where you didn't have to write an essay. And I was a super lazy senior high school student, and uh, it was rolling admissions. So I found out pretty early, I think in like October, that I got into Rutgers, and I said, all right, I'm going to just go to Rutgers. So after October, uh, basically I just kind of stopped caring about my senior year. I just kind of stopped caring about school. And that almost ended, uh, that almost actually got me in some pretty big trouble because one of the things I decided to do that year is uh, I decided not to uh, go to gym class, to phys ed, three days out of the week. And I, you know, I lied and I said, you know, I have lab, which, you know, some people actually had. And I said, because I have lab, I won't be at physical education. And the way my schedule was, I had phys ed, I had lunch, and then I had study hall, uh, back to back to back. And uh, in my school, you could actually leave the school and, you know, go out or go home or whatever during your lunch period. And so what I did was I decided three days a week not to go to physical education. Uh, I had my lunch period, and then once I just never showed up to study hall at all, right? So I had three periods free in the middle of the day, and it was great. And I didn't even do anything. I just went home, and I took a nap. 
and then I went back to school. Now, I don't know why, but when I was a senior, I thought I wouldn't get caught, right? <laughs> I, thought I, w- I thought nobody would notice, but, you know, teachers do this thing where they, you know, they take attendance and they notice that you're not in class. So, of course, I got caught. I got called to the dean's office and uh, he told me something that freaked me out. And he said, you know, uh, the policy in this school is if you have two unexcused absences, you automatically fail for the quarter. And uh, I had, at that point, 15 unexcused absences. So he said, you know, you should, you should fail physical education. And then he said this, did you know in New Jersey, four years of physical education is a requirement to graduate? And if you fail one quarter of phys ed, that's going to disqualify you from graduation. And uh, of course, I was freaking out. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to take phys ed in the summer. And uh, not only that, I'm not going to be able to graduate with my friends. And not only that, I don't know if Rutgers is going to take away their uh, acceptance for me. And I was really scared. And this kind of irresponsible attitude of just, you know, I know where I'm going next year, so I'm not going to care about the present uh, kind of ended up biting me in the butt. Now, it actually kind of worked out for me because they were very merciful. And uh, that was actually the first time in high school that I got in trouble. So I think uh, they took that into account. And they said, for the rest of the year, uh, you're going to have lunch detention. So uh, instead of going out for lunch, I would go into this classroom and I would sit there and eat my bagged lunch by, you know, with a couple other people. And uh, he would also say, and you have to go to X amount of Saturday detentions, which basically, you know, on Saturday at 8 in the morning, you go to the school cafeteria and you sit there for the whole day in detention. And that was my senior year, right? <laughs> but I got to graduate. I passed phys ed. I didn't have to go to summer school and I ended up going to college. Now, I don't think that's the right way to approach things where uh, you know where you're going to go. You know know what you're doing in the present uh, is eventually going to pass. And I think what Paul is saying here is it's kind of like, you know, you won't be in high school forever, so don't get too attached, right? Don't get too attached to the classes. Don't get too attached to your teachers. Don't get too attached to that schedule. Uh, don't get too attached to the activities because one day high school is going to be over and you are going to move on to college. But at the same time, you're still in high school. And while you're still in high school, you know, you have to realize you have some responsibilities there. And I think this is the tension that Paul is trying to maintain here. And he's saying this, you know, one day this present form of this world is going to pass away. That doesn't necessarily mean you shirk the responsibilities you have in this world, but at the same time, your hope has to be rooted firmly upon the world that is to come. Therefore, marriage is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but marriage is just temporary, and your hope shouldn't be in marriage, but it should be in the world to come. And if your passions are strong, then you should just go ahead and get married because marriage is not a sin. And what you do in the present age still matters. But ultimately, the hope of a Christian is, again, in the world that is to come. I want you to look at verse 32 for a moment. And he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. 
And I don't think we should take that as him saying that marriage is a bad thing and you can't be a faithful Christian if you're married. Uh, I think he's saying marriage is good, but if you're single, it actually might be a better option to remain single. Why? So that you can actually be free to focus on the things of the Lord. Now, I think uh, I don't think he's making a theological point per se here. I think maybe he might be making a practical point. And I think practically speaking, somebody who is not married and doesn't have kids probably has a lot more freedom to uh, to minister to people. I don't know if <clears throat> Paul could have done everything that he had done if he had wife and kids. Uh, there is this pastor uh, named John Stott. And he wrote many, many books. He wrote over 50 books in which I personally have profited a lot from. And uh, in an interview, somebody asked him about his experience. He ended up never getting married. And somebody asked him about his experience as a single person. And uh, he says this, you know, it was never my intent not to get married. And just like everybody else, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I just assumed I thought I was going to get married. But this was in his old age, probably in his 80s. And he would say this. He said, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I think I know why I didn't get married. I could never have traveled or written as extensively as I have done if I had the responsibilities of a wife and family. And I think maybe this is something what Paul is basically saying here. The time is short and there is so much gospel ministry that needs to be done. And, uh, you know, those who are single have a lot more freedom and a lot more opportunity to participate in the work that the Lord is doing. Now, I get, I get for some people uh, who want to get married and aren't married, I don't know if that's going to necessarily provide you solace and comfort. I don't think, I don't know if you're necessarily going to say, oh, I'm so blessed. Um, but I think you should. I think if we have the right perspective in terms of the two ages, in terms of where our hope is, uh, I do think that is the ideal and that is the goal of where we want our hearts to be. Now, I heard, uh, I once heard somebody uh, uh, humorously describe the difference between single people and married people with families like this. Um, she said, you know, single people are kind of like uh, a small compact car and you kind of zip to and fro and you got to make a turn, you just make a turn. And uh, married people with kids and especially young kids are more like this huge uh, semi-truck and every time you want to make a turn, it takes a lot more patience and a lot more coordination uh, to go uh, where you want to go. And I, I think we've seen that practically in this particular congregation, because if you think about it, you know, when the church started, it was filled with a lot of younger people who were mostly single. And I think we would all agree that at that time, community just was a lot easier, wasn't it? Uh, you had the opportunity to form a lot of friendships and maybe even, especially during that time, was where you formed a lot of the friends that you have today. You know, I remember my first year here about six years ago, and uh, after a Sunday, I think it was like a three-day weekend, uh, someone said, hey, you know, we, n nobody has work tomorrow, let's go to Atlantic City. And uh, you know what we did? We just that night we drove down and we went to Atlantic City and I don't think any of us slept that night and we drove back up the next morning and uh, you know you can only do that when you don't have kids and you don't have responsibilities. Uh, I know people used to go on a lot of trips together and things like snowboarding trips and uh, these things helped build and facilitate and 
foster community and build great friendships. And during that time, you could actually have a conversation with somebody and not get interrupted by a child who is screaming or not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And uh, these days, you feel like you talk to one of your friends now and they have a child and it seems like you never finish a conversation with them anymore. And there seems to be this limit of... Uh, you know, being, just having the freedom to form the deep relationships that you were once able to form. And again, I think these are just very practical points. And uh, basically what I'm just trying to point out is this, that, yeah, you have a lot more freedom as a single person to build friendships and to build meaningful relationships and to spend time with people and to delve into the lives of people uh, more than somebody who... Uh, maybe is married and has kids and has has the responsibility of family. And if you don't buy into this narrative that says marriage is everything, uh, but you believe the Bible's narrative about the hope of the age to come, then I think you'll begin to see what Paul is saying when he says singleness is actually a great gift. Not just a gift to yourself, but it's a great gift to others. It's a great gift to the body. It's a great gift to the church. It's a great gift to gospel ministry. And if Paul is saying that singleness is not only a good option, but perhaps it is even the better option, then the conclusion we have to reach is marriage can't be everything. Marriage can't be where we draw our worth and self-value. Marriage can't be where we get our identity from. Marriage can't be the place where we look for ultimate self-fulfillment. And so what I think is, altogether, whether you're married or single, we have to stop thinking like that and reinforcing this narrative that says marriage is everything in our community. Now, here's what I'm going to guess, that for most people, uh, this is going to be a hard narrative to shake. If you're single, you may not receive any comfort from what Paul is saying here, and you might be thinking honestly, Uh, I don't really care about uh, ministering to other people. I myself just want to be happy. Uh, I don't want to feel alone anymore. And if you're married, you might uh, be living in this narrative too. And I would say if you're married, how do you know if you're living in this narrative? Well, if you feel like your marriage is not meeting your expectations and you're really unsatisfied in your marriage, then that too could be a sign that you're living in this narrative that says marriage is everything and marriage is there for your self-fulfillment. And so you may conclude, if your marriage is not going well, that one, maybe you married the wrong person, or two, your spouse needs to change. And uh, I think a lot of times it might be the latter case. And when it's the latter case, that I think leads to greater conflict because both spouses expect the other person to change. And, uh, you know, it just ends up in a lot of fighting. So how how do we become free from this kind of narrative? Whether you're single or married, how do we free ourselves from thinking marriage is the ultimate, marriage is everything? I think we have to truly and honestly do this. We have to believe in God's narrative, and we have to look at our lives in view of his narrative, his story. We have to locate ourselves within God's plan and what God says is true and the arc of God's story. And in God's story, there is indeed a marriage celebration to come, but that marriage celebration is not ultimately with an earthly spouse. That marriage celebration comes because our spouse is Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we have a husband and a bridegroom who loved his bride so much that he died for his bride on the cross. 
And that great act of love actually guarantees intimacy, fellowship, fulfillment, and joy. And it's not to say that in this present world or in this age that you are going to experience those things fully, but you can taste it as you share in fellowship with him. And you can hold on to the hope that one day there will be a celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where these things that we long for, that our hearts long for in this age, will be fulfilled in Christ, who is our true husband, whose marriage is the true marriage, the one that our hearts truly need to hold on to. This age, whether you're married or not, I think our hearts may always ache and long for the blessings of marriage, maybe from two different sides of the coin. Somebody who's not married aches for the blessings of marriage uh, because they don't have it. And maybe somebody who is married aches for the blessings of marriage because they didn't find it in their own marriage. But you see, in the age to come, those aches will one day be taken away and we will be left to rejoice in the union that we have with Jesus Christ, who is our everything. Friends, marriage is good. And I don't want to poo-poo marriage. I don't think Paul poo-poos marriage. But it's not everything. It's not. Whether you long to be married because you're not married, or whether you long for your marriage to be your ultimate source of fulfillment, marriage can't do that for you. The only marriage that can is the one that we have with Christ. And so long for him because he is our everything and live in that freedom, friends. Let's bow our heads in prayer as the worship team leads us.